Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. On June 29th, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected race-based affirmative action. It means that colleges and universities can no longer use race as a factor in admissions. The rulings came in two separate cases, one against Harvard and the other against the University of North Carolina. When the decisions were released, our summer interns, Stacey Addo and Carol Chin, interviewed some of their current and former classmates at Eastern Connecticut State University and Columbia University. In terms of how this ruling will affect me personally, um, even I'm still trying to figure that out. I was angry, I was upset, I was really mad, I was confused. There, there would be definitely a decline in diversity in classrooms, diversity in how, you know, like, thought is very influenced by identity. That was Priya Sagar, Celeste Petrowski, and Weena Tang. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we take a look at what these decisions on affirmative action can mean for the future of higher education. Later in the show, we hear from U.S. Secretary of Education and former Connecticut public school teacher Miguel Cardona. He'll talk about how the Biden administration is working to diversify classrooms. And we'll also hear from John Maduco, president of Connecticut State Community College. But first, Jen He Lee is director of strategic initiatives at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. It's commonly known as LDF. Lee oversees LDF's pro-truth initiative, and she led its representation of 25 Harvard student and alumni groups in the most recent affirmative action case. Jen He, welcome to Disrupted. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you in the context of this recent Supreme Court decision. But before we do that, let's take a step back for our listeners. Share with us the mission of the Legal Defense Fund and how that connects to your own interest and commitment to this area. Well, as many people know, um, LDF is the legal organization founded by the first Black Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall to really vindicate the rights of Black Americans in this country and has been the leader when it comes to achieving racial justice in the United States and trying to fulfill the promise of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And I have to say that this work not only affects Black Americans, but all people of color in the United States, including myself. I am a first-generation Korean-American immigrant that grew up in a very uh, rural and all-white community in the South. And uh, and I know from personal experiences how race can impact a person's development, their self-confidence, their opportunities, and so forth. You were personally involved on behalf of LDF in this most recent case that was before the United States Supreme Court. Share with us your involvement and what the goal was of that involvement. Yes, we were involved even from the trial levels uh, when the when the case was before the district court in, in Massachusetts, in Boston, Massachusetts. We represent 25 um, student, Harvard student and alumni organizations because at, up to that point, 
the case was really between Harvard and the plaintiffs. And what was really missing was the stories, perspectives, and um, and expertise of the people who are actually going to be impacted by that by that lawsuit and that court decision. And so we had represented um, these twenty five student alumni organizations through the trial process. We actually participated in oral argument in the first court, first circuit court of appeals, and then later represented these these same groups before the United States Supreme Court um, by submitting an amicus brief. You know, I think the term affirmative action is one that everyone knows, but everyone has a different definition of what that means or a different perception of what that actually means. What was the core of affirmative action in this particular case that was at issue? I think that touches upon a really important issue about the misunderstanding and the the misinformation about what affirmative action is in higher education. Um, The opponents um, often refer to it as a racial preference. That is hardly the case. In order for it to be a racial preference, um, you really have to have a system that is, is is, is initially fair and everyone has equal opportunities, and somehow you're favoring one group over the other. But that is not the reality that we live in, and that's not the reality that my clients know um, is at Harvard, because, in fact, there are so many inequalities when it comes to the admissions process in higher education. And what affirmative action does is actually allows colleges and universities to consider race among a whole plethora of other factors that they look at, you know, they can look at what high school a student comes to, like whether their parents graduated from college, what their intended major is going to be, um, what what their socioeconomic background is. All of these are really important factors that colleges and universities should consider. But a person's race can also be an important factor in who that person is and what kind of opportunities they have. So it's not affirmative action is not admitting people because of their race. It's allowing colleges and universities to consider race as one of many factors that they consider in order to create a diverse learning environment on their campus. So if race was one of many factors that colleges could consider, and as you said, there's so many other factors, or they're nebulous there, depending on not just the school, but perhaps the person who's reading an application, if that's the case, Why then was this so significant to say that that could no longer happen in college admissions? And I want to also offer the nuance because you have been very particular about this. There was an exception carved out for military academies, for example. But if it's one of many factors, why was race so significant in this case? I think this really comes down to a competition of worldviews about whether or not race should be acknowledged and celebrated. And I think that what the opponents of affirmative action are trying to argue is that equality means ignoring race and pretending that everything is equal and everything is equal and everything is fine as it is right now. But that is so far from the truth and the reality of what people experience on a day-to-day basis. And it also really disregards the fact that race is not a bad word. It's not, it's not, it's not a negative to recognize and appreciate someone's race. In fact, it's something that is really wonderful and vibrant about our country and something that we should really take advantage of. 
There have been some people who have described their reaction to this as being disheartened but not surprised. And others who have said, oh, this really isn't a big deal. It's only about admissions. There's so many other pieces of a person's experience. What was your reaction to this decision, to the announcement, given the work that you've been doing for so long to really raise the nuance that gets overlooked? Well, I think as a civil rights lawyer, it was it was incredibly um, disappointing because um, I chose the law as a profession because I believe that change is possible through the legal system. And in order for that to work, there needs to be integrity in the legal system that um, that judges who look over cases and have this incredible power of deciding these important cases are going to look at the facts and the law fairly and really uh, abide by precedent um, and, and acknowledge that their role in shaping law and policy um, and society is really important and, and to take it very seriously. Now, I think that this decision by the Supreme Court in the affirmative action cases is an example of, of many cases that have come down from this particular court, which have been really extreme and have really um, upended the, the, the law as it has been for several decades, because the law regarding affirmative action higher education has been pretty much the same for almost 50 years. And to have in one decision be able to kind of wipe away 50 years of history and success, actually, in creating a more equitable higher education was really um, was really devastating for many in the civil rights community, including myself. But I also don't want this to be um, a fatalistic kind of decision. I think that it's really important for us to not give up. I think that um, it's definitely I want to acknowledge the fact that it was a devastating decision, but it doesn't stop or um, and it shouldn't hinder our commitment to ensuring racial equity when it comes to our educational system. In fact, it's even more important now than ever before. One of the things I often hear young people say when they're talking about affirmative action and some of the concerns that they've had about the pathway toward this particular decision is the concern that it pits groups against one another, particularly Asian American students and Black and Latinx students. But I also have this concern, Jenny, that it masks the internal differences within Asian American communities, that it does not look at the socioeconomic demographics, the sort of changes based on geography, and then puts forth this model minority myth and stereotype that becomes damaging to Asian American students writ large. Do you think that's a, a worthy consideration here, or is this really about interest in a different way? I think that is such um, a, an important uh, component of this of this litigation and the whole debate about affirmative action that has really been quite tragic. Um, you can just look at our own clients. You know, of the twenty five um, student alumni organizations, um, almost half of them are Asian American organizations. And just as you said, you know, Asian Americans are incredibly diverse. So we, you know, we have the um, Chinese American students, we have the, you know, the, the Pan-Asian American students, Korean Americans, Japanese Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Indian Americans. Um, and when they decided to join um, this coalition in this lawsuit, it wasn't an easy decision for them because there were these claims that affirmative action discriminates against Asian Americans. 
And I think, you know, they, as well as we at LDF, take claims of racial discrimination very seriously. But the reason why they decided to join, and it took, you know, I think it took a lot of internal debate and, um, and it wasn't, again, an easy decision. They ultimately decided to join this coalition because they understood that the plaintiffs in, the, in this lawsuit did not represent them, did not represent their experiences, as you said, completely simplified what the experience of Asian Americans are, and really uh, ignored the benefits that Asian Americans have received from affirmative action throughout the years because they have been beneficiaries. There was a time when there were very few Asian Americans in Harvard, for example, and the fact that they benefit by being exposed to students of all different you know, backgrounds and races. Um, and and it, we saw this too during the trial because um, you know ironically the plaintiffs the students for fair admission organization did not put on a single student or single alumni as a witness they did not present or put forward a single Asian American student who claimed who who could claim credibly that they were discriminated against in their application process and they had access to all of this information but they didn't put forward a single one. And yet there were at least three uh, um, Asian American students and alumni who testified in favor of affirmative action at trial. That sense of erasure is so key for all students, but particularly for, I think, Asian American students who are often left out of the discourse, Asian Americans in general, left out of the discourse about what struggle and discrimination, how it really manifests in the United States. I have this ongoing concern because now people are saying, well, we need to dismantle legacy admissions. That seems to be the next frontier. Here's my concern. Call it a selfish one. As someone who went through colleges and universities, had very difficult experiences based on racial identity, experienced a lot of discrimination, one of the things I held on to was that for all I was going through, I could pass on to my kid some semblance of being able to inherit not the bad parts, but at least the access. And so I wonder whether dismantling legacy admissions will end up hurting families of color who have suffered, who have endured. And so it it sort of erases that kind of nuance. Do yeah. you see legacy admissions as being the next legal frontier in the fight to change admissions? Or do you think it will continue on this case by case, school by school basis, based on those internal debates? Well, we've already seen um, a civil rights complaint filed against Harvard because of their legacy process. And that is currently being investigated by the federal government. And you're right, I think that there have been a lot of criticisms of the legacy process. Uh, You know, to me, I think what's important is looking at the facts and the facts of each school and of each um, admissions process. Because regardless of whether it's legacies or any other um, component of admissions process, if they disproportionately disadvantage students of color, then it's something that should be revisited and revised. Jen He Lee is Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Legal Defense Fund. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Coming up, we'll talk to John Maduco, President of Connecticut State Community College, about how this decision shapes Connecticut's community college system. And later, United States Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona talks about how schools can become more diverse even after the Supreme Court decisions. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the Supreme Court's decisions on affirmative action. Our summer interns, Stacey Addo and Carol Chin, interviewed some of their current and former classmates at Eastern Connecticut State University and Columbia University. Meritocracy is kind of near impossible to administer in America. Just because there's so many structural nuances, you know, in terms of access to opportunities, um, what people have available to them, what messages they're hearing based on their identity. When we value like the bodies and the minds and like the lives of people of color and when we don't. And I think that's a conversation that people also need to be continue um, to be having. I just feel like I feel like we need to as um, as a country come together because this isn't it isn't right for this to be taken away. And it isn't right for this to not be an option for students. That was Priya Sagar, Wina Ting, and Celeste Petrowski. Later in the show, we hear from Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona. But first, John Raduco is president of Connecticut State Community College. Connecticut's community college system accepts nearly all students, but many of them will still be affected by these most recent decisions, especially those who are looking to transfer to four-year colleges. Dr. Maduka, welcome back to Disrupted. Hey, thank you so much. Good seeing you again. You now lead New England's largest community college system, combining 12 colleges or spaces into one broader system. Talk to us about the demographics of the students that are served and included in the Connecticut State Community College system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we serve about 70,000 students on an annual basis, about 50,000 credit-based students. Um, about 20,000 non-credit-based students. Uh, we are a minority-majority institution, right? So um, slightly above the 50% threshold, um, our makeup is students of color with about 30 to 33% of our students coming from the Hispanic Latinx background. Then another, I, I would say 15 to 17% being from the Black African-American background, and then it kind of trails off. Um, in terms of the socioeconomics, about 40 to 45% of our students are Pell eligible, meaning they come from a lower socioeconomic background. Um, our, our students represent the diversity and beauty and also complexity of Connecticut, have it be their student parents, have it be their military, have it be they are adult learner, have it be they are incarcerated or formally incarcerated, uh, or have it be there are immigrants and new to the United States. I think we really, um, you know, speak to, you know, the richness that's found here in Connecticut. But that also means that there are just natural challenges and barriers inherently uh, for our students that we we work and strive day in and day out uh, to not only remove, but to ensure that we can get them on a path towards success. How will this particular decision affect what's happening in our community college system, given the complexity and the diversity, but also the tremendous need to connect that system to the needs of our residents? Connecticut State Community College um, you know, we have through a regional type of um, layout, you know, we have three regional affirmative action plans with the state in terms of our commitment to equity and diversity amongst our employees. You know, equity, diversity, inclusion and belonging is our core value. So for, for starters, I think one, 
there's gonna be an impact to our to our students indirectly. So community colleges nationally, we are, or two-year colleges nationally, uh, for the most part, open enrollment, right? So the mission of a community college is really one. We say no to, we say no, to no one, right? We accept everyone from all walks of life. And I think you want that type of institution in your backyard. And guess what? We provide that here in Connecticut statewide. Um, but, but over 70% of our credit-based students are seeking to transfer to a four-year institution, right? So knowing that now, you know, race-based, you know, admissions, you know, decisions are now being stripped and, and revoked, I think it's challenging, right? Because we know that historically and systemically, you know, there's still huge and significant disparities as it relates to students of color and students from other marginalized and underserved communities matriculating to four-year institutions, not only the Ivy Leagues that often dominates this headline, but really all four-year institutions, right? So, you know, I think the intentionality of affirmative action is often lost in this conversation where there's no context that's added to it, right? The context being there has been a historic disparity of Black and Brown and Indigenous and women and low income and, and individuals with disabilities going to four-year institutions, including the, the very best of the four years that we have. And knowing that the majority of our students wanna to go to those very institutions, I think right now, there's gonna be a concern, a worry, if not a fear on the part of our students to say, hey, maybe my advancement to a four-year institution, it's not for me. Maybe I'm unworthy just based on the sea change in terms of the laws at the highest court in the nation. And so for, for me, that's one, that's the immediate impact in terms of our students are going to be dissuaded from continuing their education at a four-year institution. I think, too, the work that we've done for years, the work that both four-year and two-year and, and private colleges have done for years to try to level the playing field, right, and and to strive and work towards ensuring that the student body reflects the very people, you know, in our country, in our state, in the surrounding community. I think that's going to take a step back, right? So that, that's that's my that's my immediate concern for our students. That's our immediate concern as an institution of higher education, and that's our that's going to be wrapped into our into our updated, if not revived, charge to our faculty, to our staff, to our leaders, to our partners to say, we have to come up with other strategies to ensure that students from all backgrounds, including underserved, underrepresented, can, can get to, can enroll, can be admitted into four-year institutions. I know that you are in close conversation with your presidential colleagues at four-year institutions across the state because of some of those transfer agreements, because of that pathway that you have long been committed to as a community college system. What's the conversation with the K through 12 space about how we are preparing or giving students and their families a realistic expectation of what may to be to come? Should we be having those conversations sooner? Absolutely. We, we have to have those conversations now every day, constantly, not only with our K-12 partners, but with our four-year institutional partners. Uh, yesterday, I had the pleasure of joining the CSCU uh, Chancellor uh, Terrence Chang and Central Connecticut State University's President Zolmo Toro um, at the Back to School Summit or event 
led by the State Department of Education. So, you know, Commissioner Charlene Russell Tucker, you know, delivered a, a beautiful and powerful, you know, beginning of the year summit with the statewide superintendents to really talk about, you know, our responsibility, right? And inspiring the next generation of thought leaders and professionals and scientists and, and what have you. And they did a really good job of really highlighting the demographics of the K through 12 student body. And guess what? Those demographics in many cases mirror the demographics of Connecticut State Community College. We are serving the same group of students. These are the students of Connecticut. And again, you see those disparities, not only, you know, majority minority, right? In terms of just the demographic of students, not only a significant number of students with disabilities, students that are free or induced lunch, aka they're going to be Pell students when they get to college, but also too that there are still barriers that prevent individuals from really believing that they're worthy enough to 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 uh, receive post-secondary education. So we have to have, we have to start having those conversations. You know, we are proud that, you know, we serve north of 25% of all dual credit students in the state of Connecticut, right? Giving college opportunity while students are in high school, that's going to be the game changer, right? So as I, you know, as, as community college presidents and leaders, faculty and practitioners across the country have thought about what do we need to do? Because so many of our students need to go to four-year institutions. I think about the power of dual enrollment, right? You know, it, you know. Again, AP has AP for decades has been. You know, you have to do AP to get into the best schools, but there's no guarantee that AP even guarantees you college credit. Dual credit does because those are college courses. That is college, right? So there are some things that we can do right now to do that. But I think also too, we have to talk about the hypocr the hypocrisy of maybe the naysayers or maybe the opponents of affirmative action. You know, you have legacy, right? You have a legacy in higher education because, well, your parents went here or your parents, you know, dedicated or donated money, good for them, to the four-year institution. So therefore your children, uh, you know, can matriculate and be accepted. That's also affirmative action, but just based on wealth. Right. You know, it's, you know, it's, ba you know, it's based on genetics and who you're related to. So I just think, you know, we have to ask ourselves so often we talk about the workforce shortage. So often we talk about what are we going to do to close these gaps in all of the industries that seem to have shortages from engineers to nurses to teachers to blue collar jobs, white collar jobs and everything in between. We have to create more pathways and opportunities for people to get into colleges two four year and beyond so the more barriers we put up we're actually hurting our own communities we're hurting our commerce right we're hurting our states we're hurting our regions we're hurting our industries right so i think that's the piece and you know i'm proud that you know institutional leaders in the state of connecticut we're having those conversations right we're trying to figure out ways to get students into these institutions but it doesn't stop there we need mom and dad we need our legislators to simply understand the context, understand the history, even the history here in Connecticut on why community colleges were created in Connecticut as another entry point, right, as another on-ramp, you know, for education. Why do we have women's colleges here in Connecticut? Because there was a time where women couldn't go to the traditional conventional schools, right? Like the history of America is layered and it's thick, and I'm not casting aspersions on people now based on what ancestors did, but some of those barriers still exist today.
And I think you point to the legacies of those barriers and the enduring legacies of those barriers. And as you well know, one of the ways that as a society, we told people they could improve their standing, they could become upwardly mobile, they could contribute to the country in a positive way was through education. It's why we had the Pell Grant system that provides federal support for students who fall below a particular economic line to not have to pay that back because the understanding was it would pay itself over in dividends if we made that investment early on. What do you say to students who may be listening to this conversation or families who are thinking about, is there a path for me in this space of education to improve our condition? Because one of the other points I don't want us to miss, when you talk about community colleges, you're never just talking about one student. It's always about a family, a community, a neighborhood, the ability to change their conditions. What do you say to students and potential students who are concerned? Yeah. Yeah. So I always start, you know, have it be it's with my colleagues and leaders that I have the privilege to work with. But when I have the privilege of being up front with one student or a group of students, I ask them about their why. Right? I ask them about like, what, what simply what are your dreams? Like, what are your dreams? Like, why why do you want to go to college? Or college is a vehicle. College is a mechanism. More about like, what is your why? You know, I want to better myself. Right. I simply just want to learn. I just want to know more about the world around me. I want to take care of my family. So I tell students, you cannot lose or forget or lose sight of your why. You really have to, you know, put it out in the universe. What is it that you want? I I think so often we make it complex in terms of a long-worded personal statement. Let's cut straight to the chase. What is it that you want? We as the institutions of higher education, not only do we accept our students for who they are from day one, that two, they've been worthy. They've been intelligent. They have all the potential in the world to do anything that they want to do, that we are simply going to meet them where they are, right? Like we are not going to have them bend to us. We're going to bend to them. That that is the thing I tell students to say that these colleges and and universities are your institutions, right? We are are simply, you know, just, you know, stewards of, of programming and services, but these campuses are yours. What do you want? from this campus? What is it that you want from this degree? And like, let's make that happen. I think it starts with confidence. I think it starts with you turn on the news, you look at history books. It can be depressing, right? You can look at an organization, you can look at an institution or a student body, and you don't see yourself in that student body. You you don't see anyone who looks like you or sounds like you or has a texture of hair like you do in that. So immediately you're thinking, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe this is an organization that will never accept me, right? And again, we have to combat that, right? We have to continuously combat those barriers, those those fears, those things that have been put into place, sadly, and sometimes by design to keep people out, to say that, hey, we have to knock down this, knock down these barriers by any means necessary, right? Like that is... When I talk to students, I tell students, it is a fist fight, right? It is your life. It is your future. It is your livelihood. It is a livelihood about the things and people you care about. What are you willing to do, right? It is a fist fight. That's the, that, that is the, the manner by which I speak to students because I, I recognize that their lives and that their needs and futures are very important to them. Therefore, it is important to me. Kevin Mayette says that love is meeting people where they are, but refusing to leave them there. 
And so we appreciate that your leadership and the leadership of those with whom you work every day refuses to leave our Connecticut residents where they are. Dr. John Maduco is president of Connecticut State Community College. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Coming up, United States Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona shares his reactions to the Supreme Court's decisions. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're exploring the impact of the Supreme Court's rulings that colleges can no longer use race as a consideration in admissions. Dr. Miguel Cardona is the United States Secretary of Education. He grew up in Meriden, Connecticut. He was a teacher and an administrator in Connecticut public schools before being named commissioner for the Connecticut State Department of Education. Here's a clip from an address that he gave in January 2022. I remember being five years old, walking into my first day of kindergarten at John Barry Elementary School in Meriden, Connecticut. I was so nervous. At that time, I was just learning English. I felt like I didn't belong. My young mother walked from home a few blocks away to come get me from school. And on the way home, she told me it would be okay. She told me that school would open doors for me to be able to be anything I want to be. Sarita, I know you're watching. You were right. Secretary Cardona, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you very much. Glad to be here with you. Before we talk about the Supreme Court decision, I want to take a step back, especially for our listeners. Share with us why education is so important and so critical in the United States. I'm a living example of the fact that public education opens doors, right? I proudly am the grandson of sugarcane farmers who uh, were not able to access education, let alone higher education. Uh, but through their sacrifices, doors were open for me. And through the public schools that I attended and the state colleges that I attended, uh, I'm now able to advise the president of the United States on issues uh, involving education for 65 million students from pre-kindergarten to grade 12 and another 17 million in higher education. It's an expansive area for students, but one of the things that we know about education is that when you enhance access to education for students, you can really transform families, communities, and neighborhoods. Given that significance in your own life and career and the many students that you have connection to now, what was your reaction to this United States Supreme Court decision on affirmative action? Sure, you know, and, and I'll, I'll respond to that in a second, but let me contextualize it the way I see it as secretary. Uh, education is not a, a nice thing to have. It's a necessity if we expect our children to reach their full potential, our communities to reach their full potential, and quite frankly, our country. It, it, we are not ranked at the top of the list um, when we compare ourselves to other countries that are, uh, you know, with similar demographics and, um, you know, higher performing countries, we are slipping and we've normalized this uh, as a nation. So to me, public education and access to higher education um, will ensure that our, not only our children thrive, that our students thrive, but our country thrives. We have an opportunity to ensure um, pathways into careers that we are making things here in America. Thank, thanks 
to the legislation passed in the last couple years, we have an opportunity to, to thrive in this country. And we're uh, this decision, in my opinion, took us backwards. So when we talk about leveling the playing field and, and making sure all students have access, uh, the Supreme Court took away one of the most valuable tools that our universities have to ensure diversity on campus. And let me tell you, you know, when I talk to parents, when I talk to students and educators, they all share the value of having a diverse learning body on campus. They, they share that the experience of learning with diverse uh, thoughts, diverse backgrounds, just enhances the educational experience. So not only did it take us back very specifically to the learning environments in our, on our campuses, but it has the potential to uh, thwart the growth that we can make as a country as we think about where we stand internationally and amongst uh, other countries in the world. Secretary, I'm struck by the juxtaposition of the power of education to move us forward as a country, to help us be globally competitive and strong in many ways, and the reality that the demographics of students who will be going to college or eligible to go to college in the next decade or so will change dramatically, particularly here in the Northeast. It will be a much more diverse demographic. How do we then reconcile the reality that students going to college will be more diverse or can be more diverse. And this decision that, as you said, can take us back. How do we wrap our heads around that competing interest of what's possible versus what will now be a tremendous barrier? Mm. You know, that's a great question, but it's always important to remind ourselves what the Supreme Court did and what they did not do. They never touched our intent. They never, they didn't, if anything, they strengthened our resolve to increase diversity on campus. Um, they took away a tool. But as you noted, our country is becoming increasingly more diverse. And it's, it's in our best interest to ensure that all students have access, that all students have opportunity. And let me tell you, before this decision, our colleges were still not as beautifully diverse as our country. Higher education has been. Um, you know, uh, a division between the haves and the have-nots in this country. Um, we are working unapologetically to fix a broken system. And a lot of the work that we're doing in the Biden-Harris administration is aimed at providing better access to college. We're, you know, something as simple as going after these news uh, world report rankings because they promote exclusivity versus inclusivity. So to me, Yes, the Supreme Court made a decision that took away a tool, but we got into leadership and education to make a difference, to open doors. We should feel uh, much more compelled now to come together and find strategies to encourage diversity on campus. We need to do a better job recruiting. We need to do a better job connecting in our K-12 schools with our counselors and with our superintendents. We need to make sure that we're more active engaging students who have historically been marginalized or students who um, as early as middle school feel like college is not for them because they don't fit that track. Um, we need to step up as leaders like we did during the pandemic to safely reopen schools. Look, we got, we got into this profession to open doors for students and now it's really pushing us to lead in different ways. And, you know, I'm up for the challenge at the Department of Education, I know the president is, and we're asking college leaders 
uh, superintendents, let's step up here and make sure we're doing right by our kids. Let's talk about the how, because you're under your leadership. The Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights released a joint resource guide or statement with the DOJ to talk about some initial guidance for colleges and universities who, as you said, have that commitment, have that resolve, and want to go forward in a way that is within those boundaries. Share with us some of the steps within that guidance, and I know more guidance will come. What are some ways that your department, the administration, is saying, here's how colleges and universities can continue to have a more diverse student body within those guidelines. Sure. Well, you know, I think it was really important for us as a Department of Education to immediately respond. Um, Within hours of the Supreme Court decision, we had a three-step plan that we were rolling out, right? So the the first step in that plan was to communicate to the field, you know, the thousands of college presidents, boards, um, and to the students, number one, um, we're going to communicate what the Supreme Court decision said and what it didn't say, right? The message included, um, not only from myself, the president, and others, we see you, we need you on campus, diversity makes our campuses stronger. So we wanted to reaffirm that. The document that I made reference to at the time, we said we're going to do it within 45 days. So we had our, our legal team, uh, Department of uh, Justice legal team, uh, going through the document and identifying what it says, but also what it doesn't say. Because w- the last thing we need is people extrapolating uh, things here. So that document was already released um, and is out there with some uh, frequently asked questions on, you know, kind of how to interpret it. That's number one. Number two, we committed to holding a national summit on educational opportunity at the Department of Education. Uh, We had that on July 26th. So about a month after the decision, we convened uh, college presidents, civil rights leaders, students, uh, educators from across the country to engage in this conversation about what does this mean and what do we do from here? We are also, subsequent to that summit, having regional uh, convenings, forums, listening to leaders at all different levels, talking about what strategy they have used or what strategies they plan on using. And then our job, step three, is to compile that into a published report uh, that we're going to put out next month um, that identifies best practices from across the country, right? You know, for us, we have the power of convening. Let's bring together the best thinking around these topics and let's come out stronger than we were even before the decision. Um, and that report will be coming out next month. But some of the conversations that we've had already at the summit and recommendations that we're hearing that may make it into the report are better uh, recruitment into our K-12 districts that have high percentage of students of color. Um, more intentional recruitment strategies, um, making sure that the uh, admissions process includes opportunities for students to talk about adversity that they face, including stereotypes or uh, racial discrimination, um, giving students ample opportunities to share who they are and their experiences. Um, obviously, we want to make sure we're, we're doing things lawfully and, and uh, respecting the decision of the Supreme Court. But at the end of the day, they even agreed that diversity on campus makes sense. So we anticipate having very clear strategies around how colleges and universities can do that and how we need to revisit our uh, admissions processes in general, because there are some practices that are still allowed that, in my opinion, uh, is just Xerox privilege. 
I'm curious how this will impact the K through 12 space, particularly given your own background as a teacher, a school-based leader, and then at the state level as commissioner for Connecticut. What's that connection between K through 12, what we're seeing, and what this decision could mean? You know, it really, to me, provides an opportunity. I, I mean this, like, you know, I, 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 I've been saying for the last three years we fought COVID, for the next three years, let's fight complacency. So we have created a man-made gap between K-12 and higher education. And we at the Department of Education are working to close those gaps to make sure that our K-12 and higher education leaders are at the same table, to make sure that our governors understand the, if not the moral benefit, the economic benefit of ensuring pathways to uh, higher education for, for all students, especially knowing that, as you mentioned earlier, you know, our, our country is becoming more diverse. So if you're leaving out a growing section, you know, what do you anticipate happening to your state? So there's an economic benefit to this. So we're connecting the dots. And my expectation, like drilling down a little bit, I expect superintendents of schools to be having conversations around easier access to higher education, dual enrollment programs, um, you know, more coordinated counseling. As a matter of fact, we're, we have a strategy at the Department of Education called Raise the Bar, Lead the World. It's, a, it's our campaign for how we're going to get our reading scores up, how we're going to improve mental health in our schools, how we're going to address the shortage of teachers, how we're going to create college and career pathways. And part of that is ensuring that our schools are doing different work to give our students an opportunity to see what options they have after high school, whether it's a four-year college, two-year college, workforce connection to four-year schools. There are so many opportunities coming that we, if we stay the way we were before the pandemic, we're going to be failing our kids. So I'm eager, coming from the K-12 space, to make those connections between K-12 and higher education. As we come to the close of our time together, one of the other big barriers to access and to equity is the economic challenge of being able to afford a college education, being able to make that investment, and then being able to navigate after you've earned that education, how you manage debt that may have been incurred. Given the Supreme Court's decision around affirmative action, its recent decisions around student loan programs, talk to us about how you think the new SAVE program, saving on a valuable education, can help continue those goals of fostering equity and access and really helping our country to thrive. Absolutely. And thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with you here today. Look, you know, a, a lot of attention is given to student debt relief plan. And yes, we are moving forward uh, to try to provide student debt relief uh, after the Supreme Court decision. But I, I want to look at this holistically and say, you know, what is the Biden-Harris team doing to make college more accessible, more affordable? We fixed the public service loan forgiveness program. There were only 7,000 people that benefited from that before we came in. Um, right now, we're over, I think we're at like 700,000 people, okay? $42 billion in debt relief to public servants. These are the same people that we called essential three years ago, okay? Teachers, nurses. So we're fixing that system that was broken. We're increasing borrower defense, meaning if there's a for-profit institution that's taking advantage of first-gen students or trying to sell them an education that doesn't deliver, we're going after them too, and we're canceling those debts. So all total, we've canceled over $117 
billion dollars in debt to over 3.4 million people. And we're introducing the SAVE program, which you mentioned is the most affordable loan repayment program in the history of our country. Ultimately, when it's, when it's all in, it's gonna cut in half the payments of undergraduate students. Um, for anyone making under $32,000, because their income is so low and they have to take care of basic needs, they're gonna have a zero uh, dollar balance a month uh, in their loan payments. So basically, it's making sure people can take care of their basic needs before they're taking care of college loans. And then it's gonna stop runaway interest, which we know has been such a barrier for black and brown borrowers. You know, I learned when I came into this job that black borrowers owed more 12 years after taking out a loan than they originally took out. The runaway interest was crushing it. So what we did was we capped that. So for those who are listening, if you're eligible to pub for public service loan forgiveness, check out SAVE program. Go to studentaid.gov, check it out. Um, we want to make higher education more accessible, more affordable, so we can reach our country's potential. Thank you for reminding us that education is an investment in our country's future and also a show of our public commitment to that future. Miguel Cardona is the United States Secretary of Education. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. This episode was also produced by our interns, Carol Chin and Stacey Addo. Special thanks to Priya Sagar, Celeste Petrowski, and Weena Ting. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.